This is the second week we're doing of a series called Foundations, Foundations. And what the series is all about is the basic spiritual disciplines that bring about a relationship with Christ that's full of life and is mature. We talked about this idea that, that if we want to achieve great things in any area of our life, it requires a certain amount of intentionality and a certain amount of discipline. And even if you're a sports fan, you always know that there are players who sometimes make the pros, but they never take that next jump to real greatness because all they do is simply coast by on their natural ability. They never become intentional about being great at what they do. And so for us as believers, we want to be great followers of Christ. We want to be intentional and disciplined about the way that we pursue Jesus and pursue being like him. We shared last week that at the root of the word disciple is the word discipline. And the idea is essentially that you cannot be an effective disciple without a measure of discipline in your life. It's the dividing line between a mature believer and an immature believer is spiritual discipline. And so today we're gonna talk about the discipline of prayer. And, and God's word has so much to say about prayer. I, I knew that whatever I taught, there were gonna be people who were thinking, how could you teach about prayer and not talk about blank? But we just have one session today on prayer, and so we're gonna try and focus on some of the most practical points that are gonna be the most helpful to us in our daily prayer life. So the first thing we wanna put, and this is on your outline, is simply this basic definition that, that prayer for all intents and purposes is talking with our Heavenly Father. It's talking with our Heavenly Father. And I chose the word with intentionally because talking to can sometimes imply a one-way conversation. But the goal is to converse with God, to share with God, and to also listen. Form can, prayer can take the form of praise, worship, intercession, supplication. They're all different types of conversation with God. Just as we converse with one another, sometimes intensely, sometimes pleadingly, sometimes casually, sometimes asking a favor. These are all different ways that we communicate with God as well. And, and as in all things, Jesus Christ is our example, in specifically Jesus' time on the earth, how he handled the issue of prayer while he was walking on the earth, while he was incarnate as a human being on the planet that he created. And we're going to look at a few examples of prayer in the life of Jesus today because we see him daily connected to his heavenly Father through prayer. I think we'd all agree that at a minimum, the ministry of Jesus could be described as effective, Right? I, I think it's pretty fair to say it was very effective. Started with one man in an age of no real social media and still is rampant across the earth today, affecting every area of life for millions and billions of people. So his ministry was effective. But the more you examine the life of Jesus, the more you'll discover, and this is on your outlines too, that Jesus' power came from being constantly filled with the Spirit by being constantly connected to his heavenly father through prayer. We'll say that again. Jesus' power came from being constantly filled with the spirit by being constantly connected to his heavenly father through prayer. It was the method by which he was connected to his heavenly father. In Mark 1.35, we read this about Jesus, a verse many of us would love to skip over. But it says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before sunlight... He went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. 
Even on the night Jesus was betrayed, we read in Luke 22, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. Other translations say, as was his custom. So this was a habit of Jesus to go to the Mount of Olives to pray, as we'll see. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So Jesus had this, this place even on the Mount of Olives that he would go to on a regular basis to just get away from the busyness and the hustle and bustle of life and the, the demands that are on a Savior <laughs> to just get away and pray. And this is described in Scripture as his custom. This was his habit. His disciples were not surprised when he did this. And so it's clear that Jesus had a daily relationship with his heavenly father that was based on prayer. That was his spiritual lifeblood. That was his connection to the father. Jesus' prayer life was so powerful, so consistent, and made such a difference in his life and ministry that after living daily life with him, after walking with him, seeing him do miracles, seeing him raise the dead, seeing him defy the logic of the religious intellectuals of, of the day, after seeing all this, up close and personal. His disciples didn't say, teach us how to do miracles like you do miracles. His disciples didn't say, man, man teach us how to say stuff that like nobody can answer back to. Teach us how to do that. They didn't say, teach us how to teach like you. When you talk, people listen. When we talk, people like run away. So how do you do that? They didn't say any of that. In, in Luke 11:1, 1, we see the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. There was something about the prayer life of Jesus that made his disciples say, if we could do that, if we could pray like Jesus prays, if we could have a prayer life like Jesus have, has, man, anything would be possible for us. Even the disciples, and sometimes their just ability to miss the obvious, were able to see, man, this is where his power comes from. It's from his connection to the Father based through prayer. What's interesting as well is they say, as John also taught his disciples. And they're talking about John the Baptist. And in the realm of Scripture, here's, here's something interesting. In the realm of Scripture, who is the greatest man other than Jesus Christ, the greatest human being? And we'd go through it and we might say, oh, it was David or it was Moses. Jesus Christ himself said, he said, there's been no one greater who's lived than John the Baptist. John the Baptist. We don't know a ton about him. We only know a few things about him in his ministry from Scripture. But John the Baptist is considered by Jesus to be the greatest human being that ever lived. That's a pretty good recommendation, in my opinion. Sort of trumps any other opinion. But so what we see as well is that John had this incredibly effective ministry. Before Jesus Christ began his ministry at the age of 30, John had the most prominent, radical, exciting, relevant ministry on the earth, paving the way for Jesus Christ. And so John's ministry is effective. Jesus' ministry is effective. And the disciples recognized that the key to John's effective ministry was his prayer life. He taught his own disciples how to pray. And so they said, Jesus, teach us to pray like you. Teach us to pray the way that John taught his disciples to pray. The two most effective ministries that have ever existed in the history of the earth had a reputation and were known by even simple men as having their power rooted in prayer. Two most effective ministries that have ever existed. This is a key to prayer right here. 
The discipline of prayer is powerful. The discipline of prayer is powerful. And many of us have, have, I think, I've done this before, bought into this idea that, that if you're not really passionate about something in your faith, you shouldn't do it because somehow you're being unauthentic. You're being fake. You're not being real. So if, in other words, if you don't feel it, you shouldn't do it because that's not keeping it real. A lot of us have bought into this. But, but how many of you know that we do things all the time that we don't even like for people that we care about? If this was not true, the romantic comedy genre would not exist, okay? It would not exist. The only reason a man finds himself at a romantic comedy is because he loves the woman he is going to see it with. That is the only reason. It's the only reason the genre exists. It all comes back to spiritual maturity. It all comes back to spiritual maturity. There are things in life that are the fruit and the result of a relationship with Jesus, a deep relationship with Jesus. And there are things in life that produce a deep relationship with Jesus. So what you never want to do is you never want to tell somebody to focus on the fruit of a relationship with Jesus when they're not even doing the things that will produce a relationship with Jesus. Because then what you're saying is you're saying, I want you to fake it. I want you to act like you have a deep relationship with Jesus when you really don't. But what you don't want to do as well is you, is you don't want to say, uh, I'm not going to do the things that will produce a deep relationship with Jesus because I don't feel like doing them. Because that's really not being honest about how life and this process works, especially spiritual life. Let's look at this from a different angle. If, if you don't feel like working out, but you work out, will you still reap the benefits of your workout? You will. You will. I mean, none, none of us say, you know, you know, I did, I just, I went for a 10-mile run, but I think we all know there's no real benefit to it because my heart wasn't in it. We all know you're still going to reap a benefit from that, and we all know we would probably all be, all be 300 pounds if we just ate and exercised and cared about our health based on how we felt. We would all be dead very, very quickly, very, very quickly. But the truth is you can still do things even when you don't feel like doing them that will produce a benefit. They will produce fruit in your life. And I think one of the great lies that Satan has gently put into us is he said, you know, if you don't feel like praying, don't do it because it's unauthentic. But we forget, no, prayer is one of the things that produces a deep relationship with Jesus. It's not merely the fruit of a deep relationship with Jesus. It's what produces a deep relationship with Jesus. And you will still reap the benefit of prayer if it's done as a discipline. I think if I said, how many of us are natural prayers? In most churches, about 90 to 95% of people, I would say, would describe themselves as not being natural prayers. I put myself in that category. I close my eyes for five minutes in any environment, and I'm in deep meditation. I mean, deep meditation. You know, I'm going to have a counseling session with Pastor Pillow very, very quickly. So you, you put, I mean, you put me in a prayer meeting where everybody has their eyes closed and you have some soft music playing in the background. You know, heaven forbid, they're like a hippie church. They got a little incense going as well. I'm gone. I am gone. Just like that. Because I'm not a natural prayer. And I got five kids. I'm not a natural prayer at all. But I've discovered there's tremendous value in the discipline of prayer. The discipline of prayer. And God still honors that. He still honors that. 
If we take a look in scripture, we see some examples of people who were not, I believe, natural prayers, but they were disciplined prayers. In Colossians 4.12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring, other translations say wrestling, fervently for you in prayers. Laboring and wrestling in prayer. So the idea is not that Epaphras is a guy who says, I just love to pray, la, 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 it just flows out of me. Even the process of praying is like wrestling, it's laboring. He's saying it's work when I pray for you, but he's always doing it because he understands that there's still power in it. Jesus and God the Father are not some fickle beings who say, well, if your heart's not really into it, then just don't bother. That's not the attitude of the God that we serve. He honors the discipline of what we're doing, and he uses it in a powerful way. Paul, speaking in Galatians, says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Among other aspects of ministry, Paul is saying that when I'm praying for you, it's like laboring in birth. This is hard work as I work with you. It's not all just natural and easy. It's hard work. I know a Romanian pastor in Poco who has a great saying that he told me he shares with all the men in his church on a regular basis, and, and I love this. He says the difference, and this applies to women as well, he says the difference between a mature man and an immature man is that the mature man does what he must. The immature man does only what he wants. I thought it's such an insightful saying because you can look at almost any area of life and that is really the difference, isn't it, between maturity and immaturity. The mature person, the mature man, the mature woman does what they must. What they know will produce the results that they desire to see. The immature person is ruled entirely by impulse, emotion, and doing the things that they want to do. And so they're never effective because they're as fickle as their flesh is. And our flesh is fickle. Our flesh never wakes up in the morning saying, oh, get up early. Yeah, pray, read your Bible. Yeah. You know, it's like never something our flesh says. Our spirit might cry out and say that. But the flesh is really, really strong. And so to be mature is to do the things we must do. It's about saying, hey, I, I don't even feel like praying, but I must. I've reached the point where the stakes are too high in my life. Maybe you've reached the point where you've got kids and you've said the, the stakes are too high. I don't want to find out that my kids are teenagers and realize I haven't really been praying for them. There's tension in my marriage. Maturity is saying, for a starting point, how can I hold up my hands and say, well, what's going on when we're not even praying together? as a discipline, as a first step. When we're saying, I, I never have enough time, I'm crunched, maturity is saying, while well, you're putting God first in your time and doing what you must, or you're just being ruled by everything else and doing what you want instead. The next key of prayer is very simple. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Jesus said that men ought to pray and not lose heart. Paul said that we should continue steadfastly in prayer. And God's word teaches us again and again that we need to persevere in prayer. 
but we need to stick it out. We need to commit to prayer. We need to be faithful to pray for that thing, that person, that situation, that circumstance, that breakthrough that we desire to see. When we give up on praying quickly, it's like being overweight and committing to a diet and giving up after a week because you don't see radical change. We've all probably watched like an episode of The Biggest Loser before. And, and you always see those moments for some of the contestants when they've been going a week and there's not a radical change. And they just want to give up because they believe nothing's happening. But we know that there are radical, radical things happening. There, there's a famous story, and I'm not going to quote the source because I'm going to get it wrong. Someone's going to look it up on the internet and you're going to email me later. So there's a story that I know from someone somewhere at a thing in a place and a time and the idea is basically that there was a philosopher walking past a quarry and there's a man there trying to chip off this enormous piece of stone in the quarry. And he's got his chisel out and he's sitting on top just hitting it with a hammer. And he's hitting it and absolutely nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. He comes by for days and the guy is just sitting there hitting it and nothing happens. And he walks by one day and the guy hits it and the whole rock splits in two. The whole thing goes down. And what the philosopher notes is he says, I know for a fact that it was not the last strike of the hammer that broke the rock. It's everything leading up to it. And often when we're desiring to see these breakthroughs in life, not everything that we pray for changes gradually. I mean, even look at the term breakthrough. It doesn't you know, imply some, somebody slowly entering a room. A breakthrough implies a defining moment where there's a significant change. And so what you find in prayer is that there are things happening gradually. The tide is turning in the spiritual world in places that we cannot see or fully perceive. But our prayers are making a difference, and it's all building up to that moment where there is a breakthrough. And that's why Jesus says, listen, do not be frustrated if you don't see an immediate change. Things are happening that you cannot even possibly comprehend. Keep going. Keep hitting the rock with the chisel and hammer. The breakthrough is coming. Being inconsistent in prayer and not persevering is also like being overweight and saying, you know what I'm going to do to remedy this problem? Every Thursday, I'm going to eat healthy. Every Thursday, faithfully, I'm going to eat healthy. And then wondering why you're not shedding the pounds. And I've been so guilty of this many times in my life where we think we're praying consistently, but really it's Thursday one week. It's Wednesday another week. Two weeks go by. We remember we're supposed to be praying. It's Monday. And we're wildly inconsistent in our prayer. But from our mind, we say, I've been praying about this for a month. A whole month, you know, and that's how we view it. And it's like, well, well, really, you've, you've prayed about it three times for a grand total of two minutes and 17 seconds. That's, that's the reality that we're talking about. I don't think that's the kind of persevering in prayer. It doesn't really count as perseverance. So don't quit. Don't quit. And we're going to talk in a minute about some practical ways that we can persevere in prayer. And as I was studying for today's message, I was really thinking through what are the things, even for my life, that I've seen in the scriptures that, that wise men of the word have shown me that have changed the way that I pray. And here's one of the things that is a big deal that nobody ever told me about growing up. And this is on your outline. There is a connection between walking in holiness and purity and the power of our prayers. There is a connection 
between walking in holiness and purity and the power of our prayers. And we all love grace, man. I love grace. I'm only breathing right now because of the grace of God. Every good thing in my life is because of the grace of God. But sometimes what we do is we distort grace in the area of prayer and we say, no matter what I'm doing, no matter how my walk with Christ is, my prayers will carry the same weight all the time. And it says something very interesting in James 5.16. It says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, accomplishes much. And you notice that he goes out of his way to put in the word righteous. We don't have time to talk about it, but he also goes out of his way to put in the word fervent, passionate. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, accomplishes much. In 1 Peter 3, 7, the gist of 1 Peter 3, 7 is that we're told to love our wives, and then it says this phrase, that your prayers may not be hindered. Your prayers may not be hindered. I was at a great marriage conference yesterday. Norman and Jackie were there as well. And the speaker, Gary Chapman, he made a great point about this verse, where it says that your prayers may not be hindered. And he said, man, this is why Peter says that, because our wives are God's daughters. They're God's daughters. So imagine for a minute that you are a father. Somebody is mistreating your daughter. You know it. And that person comes to you and says, hey, man, can you do me a favor? How's that conversation going to go? It's not going to go real well, right? It's not going to go real well. Even if you say, listen, listen, I know I've been mistreating your daughter, but can we just put that to the side for a minute and talk about something else? No. No, we can't. There is nothing else to talk about. You can come back tomorrow, and there'll be nothing else to talk about. You can come back a week from now, and there will be nothing else to talk about until you repent and change the way you're treating my daughter. And so Peter even says, he says, you got to recognize your prayers will be hindered if you're not loving your wife the right way. It will affect your prayers. They'll be hindered. It's a radical radical idea. Sin creates this barrier between us and God. To put it another way, it would be like my kid coming up to me and saying, hey dad, you know, I, I know you're a little upset that I just took a hundred dollars from your wallet, you know, but um, let's just put that to the side and just have some quality time together as father and son. I, I don't want all that stealing stuff to come between us. <laughs> That's just not going to work. We're going to deal with that issue because this is a barrier in our relationship. And I think we all know this is true, right? Because if we have an area of our lives where we're in rebellion to God, we're disobeying God, we're ignoring God's word, God's instructions, and we know it, here's what we find ourselves doing. We go to church and we just don't really engage in worship. We don't really engage the presence of God because deep down we know he wants to talk about that issue. He wants to talk about it. And if we, deep down we know that, so we don't say things when we're in that state of rebellion like, Lord, if there's anything you want to say, just check. We don't say that because we know exactly what he's going to say, you know. So we're just like, I'm just going to sing my song, sing, 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 read my notes, read my notes. Okay, good, I can go home right now. Okay, good time, God, good time. Because we know that he wants to talk about that one thing. He wants to talk about it. He wants to deal with it. He wants to deal with it. 
and he doesn't want to deal with it because he's a heavy-handed authoritarian God. He wants to deal with it because it is a barrier between you and him. It is a barrier. And he, sa- he says, listen, I, I've died to set you free of that. I've died so that my grace can make that not an issue. But there can be no grace where there is no repentance. So change your mind. Repent. Change what you're doing. Change course so that we can be back in relationship. So there is a massive, massive connection between our holiness and purity and obedience to God and the effectiveness and power of our prayers. Huge, huge, huge connection. If you're praying, my pastor from Florida used to say this, if you find yourself praying and you're just getting nothing back from God, you feel like it's like he's not even there. He would always say, go back, think back to the last thing God said to you. What was the last thing he said to you? Because many times people would realize, oh, oh right, God asked me to do this. He revealed that I need to be doing this through his word, and I haven't done that, and I haven't really heard from God since. And what God is saying is, is he's saying, you're coming to me, saying, Lord, speak. And he says, I spoke. I spoke. If you're not going to do it, why am I going to keep speaking? Go, go do what I told you to do. And then we'll carry on the conversation. Because otherwise, our relationship with God becomes God saying, hey, hey, here's where I want to lead you. Here's where I want to take you in life. And we say, oh, I love you, Jesus, but no. As if God's going to say, okay, well, here's another option for you. And we're going to go, ah, oh, I love you so much, Jesus, but that's really not my thing. Let's try again. God's going to keep going like that. And that's not the way God is. Because that would be irreverent for us to keep asking God to give us instruction until we finally get one that we like. Reverence for God is saying, Lord, speak whatever you say I want to do. That's my heart. That's my heart to honor you. So we want to make sure that our disobedience is not hindering our prayer life. The next key is pray with thankfulness. Pray with thankfulness. We just studied this in our our growth group on Wednesday night, and this was so good it's worth mentioning again. It says this in Philippians 4, chapter, verses 6 through 7. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is simply asking for help. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So first we have the instruction in verse 6, and the instruction is be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then we see the results in verse 7 that following the instruction will produce. The results are the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. To put it simply, the non-believer's response to problems is anxiety. Is anxiety. The believer's response is prayer. That's what Paul is saying. He says, do not be anxious. He says, because your anxiety is you acting as though you don't have a heavenly father to go to with this. And he says, you do. You do. So respond in prayer. The idea is that that's supposed to be our knee-jerk reaction. 
to crisis, to problem, to challenges in our lives. I got such a long way to go in this because my usual response is panic. Then uh, remember, okay, okay, I should be praying. I should be praying. But the goal is to have prayer be the knee-jerk response for us. And for every single one of us, that should be our goal. Man, crisis prayer, problem prayer, obstacle prayer, 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 prayer. And then we see thanksgiving. Thanks, thanksgiving about what? Thanksgiving that we can take our prayers to God, that we can bring our supplications to the Father. Does it ever hit you in those moments of crisis when you're praying to God? The weight of the truth that you are talking to God about your problems. That in your moment of crisis, in my moment of crisis, we pick up the phone and call God the King of Kings, the sovereign God of the universe. That's who's in our Rolodex when we run into a problem. And every time I do that, my heart honestly breaks for those that don't know the Lord because they have to go to a bookshelf. They have to go to an online forum. They have to go to Facebook to try and solve their crisis or their problems. And we get to go to God with our issues. And here's the crazy part. He listens. He listens. That's mind-blowing. And so Paul says, even in that moment of crisis, be thankful. Be thankful that you're able to do this. Be thankful that you can say, Father, and you have him to share your issues with. In John 11, we see Jesus praying and raising Lazarus from the dead. It says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. You always hear me. I love those words of Jesus. I mean, what a, what a great thing to pray. And Jesus begins his prayer that way. What a great way to begin a prayer in a moment of crisis. Simply saying, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. You always hear me just acknowledging that truth. On a practical note, I'm, I'm going to share, share with you something I like to do uh, when it comes to prayers and, and praying with perseverance. I like to ask God once the first time. And then after that, I like to thank the Lord that he heard me that first time and thank him that he is working out things for my good because I'm called according to his purpose. So that means the first time I go to him, if I say, God, I'm praying that you would provide a job the second day, I don't pray, God, please provide a job. Because for me, this is just something personal. There's almost an implication there that maybe he didn't hear me the first time. But what I love is I love to pray the second day, Father, thank you that you provide all my needs. Thank you that you hear me when I pray. You've always taken care of me, and thank you that you will provide the right job at the right time. And I'm acknowledging that he has heard every other prayer that I've prayed, I'm acknowledging that it's already coming. He's already at work. And it just keeps my mind in a state of faith, thanking God that he's always working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's something practical I like to do. You don't have to do that. But it's something that I, I just like to do personally to build faith. And as we look back at Philippians 4, notice that when it comes to our needs, we are told to ask we're told to ask, and that's the next key is ask God. Ask God. Philippians 4 says, let your requests be made 
known to God. So what, why is that? If he already knows everything about us, Jesus said, your father knows what you have need of before you even ask. If that's true, why does he tell us to ask? What's the point of the ritual? Uh, to maybe share an idea of what's the driving force behind what God is doing there, I'll share a story with you. Charlene and I, about two years ago, went through some training to get certified to become foster parents in the state of Florida. You have to go through like 12 weeks of classes where they basically help you understand that if you're bringing a traumatized child into your home, there can be all kinds of issues and you need to be prepared for them. And one of the coaches shared something very interesting. Very interesting. They shared that when they had a child come into their home, the child often has a very hard time believing that their needs are going to be met and that they're going to be taken care of because they get shuffled home to home, home to home. And nobody really looks out for them. And so they do weird things like they hoard stuff, like they'll go steal food from the pantry or the closet and hide it under their bed. They'll steal toilet paper and hide it under their bed because deep down they're not sure if you're going to take care of them that next day. And so one of the foster moms who, who was doing the training, we were watching this on video, she shared something she does as foster kids come into their home, is she makes them ask for everything. Everything. Like, can I go outside? Can I go to the bathroom? Can I have a drink? Can I have a snack? Can I have this? And at first you heard it, and you're like, well, what, what's, with, what's with that? And then she shared, she said, the reason I'm doing that is to give them as many opportunities as possible to hear me say yes, to hear me say yes. And she said, I'm trying to get them to understand that I do care about them. I care about their most basic practical needs. And there's incredible power in saying yes to that. And so what I believe is that God knows everything we have need of. His word tells us that. But he wants us to learn reliance on him just as that foster parent wants this child to learn the concept that they will take care of them. They do care about their basic needs. They're not there to say no. They're there to take care of them. So God says, ask me, ask me, ask me. Because in doing that, we're conditioning ourselves to become more reliant upon God. Every time we ask God, we're not only asking him, we're acknowledging that he is our source. We're acknowledging that he's ultimately our provider and we're waging war against the side of us that loves to be a self-made man or a self-made woman. Many of us are, are gifted, incredibly gifted in work, in business or in our career, and we work hard and that provides an income for us. But when we go to God and ask for our needs, that's a tangible reminder, hey, listen, ultimately everything I have in my life that is good is a blessing from God. And he's ultimately my provider. And that pays off big time when suddenly there's a career crisis, right? Suddenly the job is gone. Suddenly the company closes down. What sort of state are you going to be in if for the past 10 years you've been convincing yourself that you are a self-made man versus the person who for the past 10 years has been saying, listen, I've been blessed this whole time, but God is ultimately my provider. That has not changed. The source of his provision has changed, but my source of provision has not. It's still him. So he wants to train us and condition us to trust him. This is on your outlines. God asks us to ask him for our daily needs so that we never forget that he is the good father who takes care of his children. He's the good father who takes care of his children. That's why he commands us to ask. And the next key is simple. 
is follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. When it comes down to the, to the nuts and bolts of how do I pray, we're blessed because Jesus literally said, this is how you pray. This is how you pray in scripture. In Matthew chapter six, he says this. He says, and when you pray, Matthew chapter six, verse seven, he says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen, people who don't know God, do. So when you pray, don't just blah, 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 blah. Use these vain, conceited words and phrases and styles of prayer, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have, the things you have need of before you ask him. So what Jesus is doing is he's telling us, he's like, first, he's like, guys, guys, just relax. Like, calm down. Because the average person was like, just, just pray, pray, talk to God. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't have the vocabulary. Is it like a 2,000 word minimum? So like, God, you know, God is inattentive and then bing, oh, you hit 2,000 words. I'm now listening. You know, is there a secret code? Is Jesus like, listen, you have to use seven, five syllable words and then I'm interested. Jesus starts off by saying, guys, guys, just, calm down just relax like breathe out and he says again your father knows what you have need of before you even ask so what what he's doing there is Jesus is saying you don't have to worry that the way you're asking him is imperfect he already knows what he wants from you is the act of asking he doesn't want you to ask so that he can have the information (laughs) You know, it's not like God is, God is like, I want to help, but I, I just don't know what you need. And, and your request was a little vague. So I, I, he says, listen, Jesus, your father already knows. So just let that go. You don't have to explain it to him. He knows what you need. There's no magic formula for asking. He just wants to hear you ask. He wants to hear you ask often so that he can say yes especially for your daily needs. So Jesus starts by saying, just calm down. There's no magic formula to this. He's trying to help us understand that God is our father. He's a father. And we interact with him like you would a good father. So there's reverence, there's honor, there's respect. But we also come to him knowing that he loves us and he has our best interests in heart. So he says, approach him as you would a father. Interact with him as you would a father. Relax and calm down. In verse 9, Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so Jesus is saying, we should start our prayers by acknowledging the one that we're praying to. So Jesus says, don't start your prayers with, hey, bro, how's it going? He says, listen, start by acknowledging and reminding yourself who it is that you're praying to, that you're praying to. And he says, make your first request in your prayer that God would be honored, that God would be honored. That's the idea of hallowed be thy name is just basically, God, I want your name to be glorified, be made more famous, receive more honor. And and for me, when I pray, when Charlene and I pray in the morning, that's how I like to start my prayer is just by saying, God, would you be honored in my life? Would you be glorified in my life? Would you receive honor in my marriage, in my family? Would you be glorified, God? Verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. 
And heaven is the ultimate place because it is the place where God's will is executed perfectly. It's executed perfectly. We know that God has a sovereign will and plan and destiny for everything that happens on the earth, but he has also allowed us a measure of free will. And we are allowed to, in one sense, ignore his will and live in rebellion to God. In one sense. Heaven is the place where God's will is executed perfectly. That's why there's no pain. That's why there's no war. There's no suffering. There's no sin. There's no temptation because God's will is perfectly executed. What we long to see on the earth, where we long for God to just come down and make everything right and force his will on the earth, that's what heaven is. This is God just saying, I'm, I'm going to call the shots. And me calling the shots is better than anything you could ever imagine. So Jesus says, your prayer should be that God's will would be done here on earth just the way it is in heaven. And I think that's especially true for our lives. That we would, we would say, God, what, what you want from me, what you want from me, may I be quick to obey and may it happen in my life. Just like in heaven, you speak and it's done. May it be true in my life that you speak and I do it. I obey. There's no wrestling. There's no delay. It's just instantaneous. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're supposed to ache for that day as believers when God finally says, okay, we're going to do things my way. We're supposed to long for that day. We're supposed to ache for that day deep in our spirits. And then we see the ask that we've been talking about where he says that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's the ask we're talking about. He says, ask me for your daily needs, your daily needs spiritually, your daily needs emotionally, your daily needs practically. Ask me for them. Ask me for them. And then he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is profound because this is Jesus modeling a daily prayer life. So he doesn't say you should do an annual retreat and forgive those who have wronged you. Jesus is saying on a daily basis, you should never go more than 24 hours max without forgiving anybody who is indebted to you in any sense of the word. And what's disturbing about Jesus' instruction is that he says it gently there. He says, forgive us, God, as we forgive others. So he's saying we remind ourselves first that we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness on a daily basis. He says, just keep that in mind. You've asked for forgiveness. Now go and forgive other people. At the end of this, Jesus will say, he sa- he'll say, if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you yours. That, that is a disturbing verse. It's a disturbing verse. Because we could have a whole discussion about that, and there's those who say, is that implying you can lose your salvation? Or, or what, what's the implication there? It's one of those verses where I think we're supposed to not have the full answer and just be a little bit disturbed by it. I think that's what God wants, you know? I mean, even if I stand up here and I say, hey, I want you to know it's not a salvation issue. You can walk in unforgiveness and God will let it slide. I don't think you should just take my interpretation on that one, right? The stakes are a little too high in my opinion. I think it's one of those issues where you say, probably safer to just forgive. 
probably safer. It's a troubling verse, troubling verse. But Jesus says on a daily basis, let it go. Forgive people, let it go. And I think it's daily because the truth is sometimes we forgive people and then we wake up three days later and find out that we didn't. Have you ever had that experience before? You're like, I forgive this person, so why have I not forgiven them? Why has it come back to life? And you just find that sometimes forgiveness is one of those things that you have to walk in. It's like, you know, like a, a horror flick where they shoot the monster and they go, oh, thank God that's over. You know, one more time. So that's sort of what forgiveness is like. Sometimes forgiveness has to be walked out. Sometimes it's not a one-time thing. Sometimes it's a decision that active, present, continual sense, I will forgive this person. I forgive them now, and when the anger and the bitterness rises up, I'll forgive them again, and I will keep forgiving them again and again and again because I've put them in the forgiven column in my life. And so I will forgive them every time that it rises up again. That's why Jesus says that. And then he says in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is interesting too, that Jesus puts us in a daily prayer because what this is, is this is an acknowledgement of a lot of the truth we've been studying in Ephesians over the past several months. As Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so right in the model for daily prayer, Jesus puts an acknowledgement that there is an evil one, there is an adversary, Satan the devil, who is out to destroy us. And he says, every day, pray that God would strengthen you, he'd make you wise against the schemes of the enemy, he'd keep you focused. So Jesus even says, every day when you pray, he says, get yourself in focus, don't forget, don't forget, there's an evil one who wants to tempt you and pull you away. Be on guard, keep your head in the game. He's not saying be fearful. He's just saying, just remember this. Keep this in mind. When it comes to temptation and opportunity to sin, there are no coincidences. He's saying, stay focused. Remember this. And he wraps it up by saying, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And I I, I love how Jesus ends this prayer because he ends his prayer with a reminder of how all things will end. All things, everything, the kingdom of God, all power, all glory will belong to God forever, forever. And so at the very end of his prayer, he just acknowledges, hey, this is how it all ends. The kingdom, the power, the glory belonging to God. This is how it all ends. This is how it will all end. So put your hope in the Lord. He ends his prayer just as he began with an acknowledgement of who it is that he's praying to. The Almighty God. The Almighty God. And he doesn't do that because the Father in heaven needs reminding of who he is. He doesn't do that so that the Father can go, oh, oh, oh right, yeah, the power is mine. Yeah, yeah, and the glory. Jesus says it because literally when he's in human form, he needs that reminder. We need that reminder of who this God is because in our humanness, we tend to shrink God down. Have you noticed that when left to our own devices, we never develop a bigger view of God? We always shrink him down. We always make him less powerful, less sovereign. But Jesus ends the prayer by reminding himself 
who his heavenly father really is. And that's a great template for prayer when you're stuck, when you're just thinking, how, how do I pray when I get up in the morning when I'm driving in the car? How do I pray and go for more than 30 seconds? How do I do that? Use that as a template. You don't have to repeat it verbatim, but just use those sections. Start by acknowledging who it is you're praying to, asking that his will would be done in your life perfectly, giving him your daily needs, asking him to strengthen you against the attacks of the enemy, and then acknowledging that ultimately he is over and above everything. Just follow that template and put your own personal life situations into that template. That's a great way to pray. It's a great way to pray. It'll really bring your prayer life to life. I'm always in awe of, of, of people who are, who are able to share the testimony. Man, I, I prayed for 10 years. You guys ever heard something like that? I prayed for 10 years before the breakthrough came every day. We always think, oh, it's awesome. But maybe in the back of your mind, like me, you're thinking, how, how do you even remember to pray after like 10 years? How do you, how do, you do that? And then we sort of just say, well, I guess they must have a gift. And as soon as we say that, we just sort of like give ourselves a free pass, right? Well, they, they've got a gift for that, so I guess it doesn't really apply to me. But one of the most practical ways to become disciplined about your prayer life, and I've seen a lot of those people who pray with consistency use this, is to simply use a prayer journal. A prayer journal. And a prayer journal is not, dear diary, it is a beautiful Thursday morning watching the sun come up over the mountain. That's not what a prayer journal is, okay? A prayer journal is very, very simply a list. It's a list of things that you're praying for. You can have it in like Evernote on your phone, in, in the notes section on your phone. You can have it in a small, tiny notebook. But it's a place where you write down the things that you're praying for. And I know this is radical. So, so what you do is like, when you tell someone, I'll be praying for you, like you would actually write this down and pray for them. I know it's very controversial because we've done things a certain way in church for a long time. We're not used to actually praying for people that we say we're going to pray for uh, until we see them the next week. And we go, oh, Jesus, I just pray you'd be with them right now. Hey, I've been praying for you. I've been praying, like in the last 10 seconds, but I've been praying for you. I kept that promise. So you write down the things that you're praying for, your practical needs, you write down the names of people that you want to see come to know Jesus. You're praying that God would lead them into a situation that would open their hearts to the gospel. You write down areas of growth you want to see in your own life. You write down the things that you're struggling with. You just write them down as a list. And at some point during the day, you go and you just pray through the list. And this is where the discipline comes in. Satan comes in and he says, oh, listen, that's so lifeless. That's so legalistic. That's so rigid to just pray for the same things every day. This is what God is talking about when his saints in the Bible say, pray with perseverance without ceasing. When Jesus says we should always pray and not lose hope. He's saying, get up, pray, do it every day until the breakthrough comes. Don't quit don't give up. And here's what I know. None of us think it's stupid when at a wedding a dad stands up and says, man, I, I've been praying for my daughter every day since the day she was born. None of us go, oh, how legalistic. Oh, nobody does that. When somebody says, hey, I, I, I was praying for this family member to come to know Jesus for 13 years before they did. None of us go, oh, boring. None of us do that. We all go, wow, what a testimony. But when we're in the moment, 
Satan comes along and says, oh, that's, that's so legalistic. That's so lifeless. That's so dead. But it's having the mature approach that says, listen, I, I will do the daily disciplines that will produce the results I desire to see down the road because I know people will not be calling it foolish. They'll be weeping with joy when I'm able to share, hey, I prayed on this till it happened. And my testimony is God did it. He did it. He did it. And you'll realize as well when you've been praying for a while and a breakthrough comes, you will know, man, it wasn't the prayer you prayed the day before that did it. It wasn't the prayer you did the day before that made the breakthrough. It was all the prayers leading up to that. That's what made the difference. So I highly, highly recommend a prayer journal. I recommend writing down the things that you say you're actually going to pray for in it. If you rise up early in the morning, it can be really helpful because I, I get up early in the morning to pray, but I'm, I'm just like in a fog. It's like, okay, what do we need to pray about? Coffee. Mm, coffee. Well, that was a good prayer time, babe. How's that for you? <laughs> you know? So a list can really help because it tells you this is what you're praying for. This is what you're praying for. And, and, and here's what I find. When you're praying about things you care about, it doesn't become dead and religious. It doesn't become dead and religious. When you're praying for your kids, when you're praying for your spouse, you don't find yourself going, oh, I gotta pray for my kids again. Oh, I gotta pray for my wife again, again, you know? <laughs> when you're in the moment doing it, it's not dead and it's not lifeless. It's full of life, full of life. And then what a great witness it is when you have a prayer journal and you start seeing things get crossed off. That, that will be a defining moment in your relationship with God when you go to your prayer journal and you get to cross the first item off. You say, hey, God did it. Boom. Done. And then over the years, you will have this book, this prayer journal, and you'll open it up. And there'll be a list of things, and they're all crossed off, crossed off. And every item that's crossed off is screaming, God did it, God did it, God did it. He's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful. Man, and that is my hope is that one day I have this book full of items that are crossed off. And even for my own kids, for somebody else who's at my house, who's discouraged, I can go take a book off the shelf and say, I, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. Go, go look at it. These are all the things that are crossed off that God has done for me. Some of them I prayed for days, some I prayed for years, but God did it, and this is a testimony to the goodness of God. We all know that God does incredible things for us all the time. Have you ever noticed how bad we are at remembering them? We're terrible at it, right? Because every time we face a challenge, we're like, I don't know if God's going to come through. Like, this is the one time God's not going to come through for you. And so when, when I got into church planting, everybody who I admire in ministry who's done it before told me, write down the things God does. Make a note of them. Because they said, you're going to have days when you're going to wake up and you're just going to go, am I, am I crazy? Did I like imagine the whole thing? Did God speak? Is God really with me? And he said, you're going to need to take down a tangible reminder. Hey, God spoke. God has done this. God did this and this and this and this and this and this. Hang in there. Hang in there. I highly recommend prayer journaling. It's really simple. Uh, the second thing is simply find a time to pray and use your prayer journal. It, it can be anything as simple as if you have a little notebook, you have a phone. Man, even just like while you're driving, don't close your eyes while you're driving. I'm not recommending that, you know. I was having a real spiritual breakthrough, and then this truck drove right in front of me and really pulled me out of the spirit. Is there, you know, is there, 
He's a real killjoy. But, uh, but what you can do is you can just have it with you when you hop in your car, you look at your phone, you look at your notebook, you look at like the first three things on your list you want to pray about. And you just pray while you're driving. You speak out loud to the Lord. You, know, you get to a red light, just look at the next couple of items and just keep praying. You can do it first thing in the morning. You can do it to and from work. You can do it at random points in the day. You can set a reminder in your phone to go off when the kids are napping or you just have that still moment or before you go to bed to just pray to just pray. Find a time that you're going to do it and, and try and build that habit in. And we're talking about this again at Growth Group is, is, is just trying to build prayer habits around daily trigger events, trigger events. And, and, and by trigger events, I mean things like making getting in your car something that's always followed by prayer. So you just develop the habit. Hey, every time I get in my car, I pray about something every time, or I pray for the next three items on my list. Every time I get in my car, I do that. Before I put on the radio, before I listen to my favorite CD or anything, I do that. Make it a trigger event. If it's like, hey, every time I walk up the stairs to work, I pray for this person. Associate an action that you do on a regular basis with just that quick prayer, that quick hit throughout the day. Even saying every time I go into a meeting with somebody, as I'm walking down the hall into that meeting, I'm going to say a quick prayer that God would move in that meeting. Coming out of that meeting, every time you do it, pray for that person. Find these little trigger events that can just spark a quick prayer within your heart because it connects you with God throughout the day as well. Prayer is the spiritual discipline of every great man and woman of God. Prayer is the spark of every major revival that has ever happened in the history of the world. There has never, ever, ever been revival that wasn't preceded by prayer. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the first time, was preceded by prayer. They were in the upper room praying before God moved. Repentance and all those things are stirred up in prayer. Prayer is the secret behind every great man and woman of God who's effective. And it is a spiritual discipline. And so my, my hope for my life and for your life is that we would master the discipline of prayer. That we wouldn't discard it simply because we're not naturally passionate about it. But we would do it because we believe in its power. We believe in its ability to cause real change. Real change. It's the way that God works. As we talked about last week with his word, there's something so humble about prayer. So humble. And I think that's one of the reasons that we shy away from it, it, it is, again, it feels like we're not doing anything. It feels like we're not doing anything. We're not knocking on somebody's door. We're not digging a ditch. We're literally getting alone with God and asking God to do something. There's something profoundly humble about prayer because all prayer is rooted in the idea that God can do what we cannot. You don't, you don't even pray if you don't have that as your starting point, that God can do what we cannot. So God's word is an incredibly humble means to find the Lord. Prayer is an incredibly humble means to see breakthrough in your life. Next week, we're going to talk about worship. But let's put this discipline into our daily lives.